Welcome, Weirdos. I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and this is One Weird Chick. Tasmania is an island state of Australia, located 240 kilometers, 149 miles, south of the Australian mainland. The island was once adjoined to the mainland of Australia until the end of the last glacial period, about 11,700 years ago. Approximately an hour and a half's drive from the state's capital, Hobart, is the town of Port Arthur. Sitting on the Tasman Peninsula, it was a 19th century penal settlement. Now, it is an open-air museum. The ruins include the huge penitentiary and the remaining shell of the convict church, which was built by inmates. Solitary confinement cells in the separate prison building were used to inflict mental punishments in place of floggings. Port Arthur is a place frequented by international visitors, school field trips, and vacationing families. However, the tragic events of the 28th and 29th of April, 1996, changed Australia's gun regulations forever. On April 28, 1996, I awoke with the rest of Australia to the devastating news of an in-progress shooting. Only in the sixth grade at the time, my young brain struggled to understand why the TV was continuously broadcasting news from Port Arthur on all channels. My parents explained that an armed assailant was currently stalking his way through Port Arthur, claiming the lives of innocent victims. We sat transfixed, waiting for the bloodshed to end. It wouldn't for another 24 hours, and it would leave in its wake 23 victims and 35 people dead. Born May 7, 1967, Port Arthur Massacre shooter Martin John Bryant was born to parents Maurice and Carlene Bryant. As a child, he was described by teachers as being distant from reality and unemotional. At school, Bryant was disruptive and sometimes violent. After he was suspended from Newtown Primary School in 1977, psychological assessments noted that he also enjoyed the torturing of animals. Bryant returned to school the following year with improved behavior, however, persisted in teasing younger children. In 1980, he was transferred to a special education unit where he deteriorated both academically and behaviorally throughout the remaining school years. Descriptions of Bryant's behavior as an adolescent show that he continued to be disruptive and portray a possible intellectual disability. 
when leaving school in 1983, he was assessed for a disability pension by a psychiatrist who wrote, quote, cannot read or write, does a bit of gardening and watches TV. Only his parents' efforts prevent further deterioration. Could be schizophrenic, and parents face a bleak future with him. End quote. As an adult, Bryant received a disability pension so he could make ends meet while working occasionally as a handyman and gardener. When Bryant was 19, he met 54-year-old Helen Mary Elizabeth Harvey, an heiress to a share in a lottery fortune. Harvey befriended Bryant, who assisted her with tasks such as feeding the 14 dogs and 40 cats living inside of her garage. In June 1990, Harvey was reported to the health authorities after it was discovered that she was living in squander. Both Harvey and her mother were in need of urgent hospital treatment due to their poor living conditions and malnutrition. Sadly, Harvey's mother died several weeks later at the age of 79. A clean-up order was placed on Harvey's house, and Brian's father took long service leave in order to assist. It was during this time that Harvey invited Bryant to live with her. Together, they began spending large amounts of money, which included the purchase of more than 30 new cars in less than three years. The couple spent most of their days shopping usually after having lunch in a local restaurant. Around this time, Bryant was reassessed for his pension and a note was attached to his paperwork. Quote, Father protects him from any occasion which might upset him as he continually threatens violence. Martin tells me he would like to go around shooting people. It would be unsafe to allow Martin out of his parents' control." End quote. Harvey and Bryant moved on to a 29-hectare, 72-acre farm called Taurusville after the cleanup. Neighbors recalled that they often saw Bryant carrying an air gun, which he would fire at passerbys. They avoided him at, quote, all costs, end quote, despite his attempts to befriend them. On the 20th of October, 1992, Harvey was sadly killed when her car veered onto the wrong side of the road and hit an oncoming car. Bryant was inside the vehicle at the time of the accident and was hospitalized for seven months with severe back and neck injuries. He was briefly investigated by police for the role he may have played in the accident. Brian had a known habit of lunging for the steering wheel, which had resulted three previous accidents in the past. In this case, nothing was ever proven. Bryant was named the sole beneficiary of Harvey's will 
and he came into possession of assets totaling more than 550,000 Australian dollars. His mother subsequently applied for and was granted a guardianship order, placing Brian's assets under the management of public trustees. After Harvey's death, Brian's father, Maurice, went to look after the farm. On August 14, 1993, a visitor looking for Maurice at the property found a note which stated, quote, call the police, end quote. It was pinned to the front door with no sign of Maurice anywhere. Police searched the property for Maurice without success and divers were called in to search the four dams on the property. Maurice's body was sadly found three days later with a diving weight belt around his neck. Police described the death as unnatural, but it was eventually ruled a suicide. Brian inherited the proceeds of his father's retirement fund, valued at 250,000 Australian dollars. With both his father and Harvey dead, Bryant became increasingly lonely. From 1993 to late 1995, he visited various overseas countries. Bryant hated the destinations he traveled to and found that people avoided him just as they did in Tasmania. Quote, I just felt more people were against me. When I tried to be friendly toward them, they just walked away. End quote. At the time of the shooting in Port Arthur, Bryant was deemed to have an IQ of 66, equivalent to that of an 11-year-old. As a result, he didn't seem to have any understanding or capability to deem right from wrong. The morning of April 28, 1996, Bryant began his day by driving to Seascape Cottage. There, Bryant claimed the lives of his first two victims, David and Nolene, Sally, Martin. It was later discovered that Bryant's father wanted to buy Seascape Cottage, but was outbid by the Martins. Maurice had complained to Bryant on numerous occasions about the Martins and their purchase. Bryant interpreted this to mean that the Martins deliberately bought the property to hurt his family. Bryant fatally shot the Martins in the guest house before continuing his drive to Port Arthur. Bryant entered the Broad Arrow Cafe on the grounds of the historic site, carrying a large blue duffel bag. Once he finished eating, Bryant moved toward the back of the cafe and set a video camera on a vacant table. He then took out a Colt AR-15 SP-1 carbine, a semi-automatic rifle, and began to claim lives 
of the patrons and staff. Within 15 seconds, he had fired 17 shots, killing 12 people and wounding 10. Bryant proceeded to walk to the other side of the cafe and fired 12 more times, killing another eight people and wounding an additional two. He reloaded before fleeing, shooting at people as he drove away in his yellow Volvo 244. An additional four people were killed and six were injured as he fled the scene. Bryant drove approximately 300 metres, 0.3 of a mile, away to where a woman and her two children were walking. He stopped and fired two shots, killing the woman and her three-year-old daughter, Madeline. Six-year-old Alana ran, but Bryant followed her and killed her with a single shot. One year later, the Alana and Madeline Foundation was launched in the girls' honour by their father and a small group of volunteers. They were driven by the belief that all children and young people should be able to live a happy and safe life, free from violence and trauma. The Alana and Madeline Foundation website states, quote, Today, our mission continues through care, prevention, and advocacy. From supporting children experiencing family violence to online bullying and fighting for the rights of young people everywhere. End quote. After the girl's brutal murder, Bryant continued his rampage. He stole a BMW and killed all four of its occupants. A short distance down the road, he stopped beside a couple in a white Toyota and, drawing his weapon, ordered the male occupant into the trunk of the BMW he was driving. After closing it, he fired two shots into the windscreen of the Toyota, killing the female driver. Bryant then returned to the seascape cottage and set the stolen car on fire. He took his hostage inside, where he had left the Martins' corpses. The police soon arrived and tried to negotiate with Brian for many hours before the battery in his cell phone died. During the negotiations, Brian's only demand was to be transported in an army helicopter to an airport. Sadly, during the course of the negotiations, Brian killed his hostage. The next morning, 18 hours later, Brian set fire to the house and attempted to escape in the confusion. Suffering third degree burns, Bryant was captured and taken to the Royal Hobart Hospital, where he was treated and kept under heavy guard. From the moment he was captured, he continually wanted to know and asked how many people he had killed. 
Brian was restricted to only listening to music on the radio outside his cell and was denied access to any news reports of his massacre. Photographers who took pictures of Bryant in his cell were forced to destroy the film in the presence of the governor once he found out. Bryant initially pled not guilty to the 35 murders, but eventually changed his plea. He was sentenced to life in prison, never to be released. The Broad Arrow Cafe has been turned into a memorial and can still be visited to this day. In the wake of the Port Arthur massacre, both gun control and pro-gun lobbyists came out in force. Those in favor of gun control use not only Port Arthur, but also mass shootings and firearm-related homicides and suicides from the previous two decades to illustrate the need for tighter and uniform legislation across the country. Pro-gun groups were very vocal in their arguing against the limiting of firearm rights for responsible owners and disliked the implication that guns themselves rather than their misuse by a small number of people, were to blame for violence. After the massacre, the recently elected coalition federal government decided to work towards engaging the states and territories to enact identical gun laws. This move was an attempt to ensure that there would never again be another event like Port Arthur in Australia. The new legislation would involve a ban on firearms that were fully or semi-automatic, such as those used at Port Arthur. There would also be limitations on who could legally sell or supply weapons, minimum licensing and permit requirements, not to mention more secure storage rules. A mandatory cooling off period of 28 days before being granted a gun license was also implemented, as were the introduction of compulsory safety courses and the need to supply a genuine reason for owning a firearm that could not include self-defense. These measures were unpopular with many conservative state governments and were opposed by gun owners, a large number of whom had voted for the coalition due to its previous support of the gun lobby. Former Prime Minister John Howard was publicly upbraided at a pro-gun rally across the country and was seen by many conservatives to be bullying state governments into changing their laws. Others in the community especially gun control groups, were supportive of Howard's decisive approach and his refusal to back down on the issue. Over a tumultuous four months, Howard and his government convinced all states and territories to change their gun legislation to comply with the 1996 National Firearms Agreement. A nationwide gun buyback scheme 
also saw more than 640,000 weapons turned into authorities. Australia has experienced very few mass shootings, but the events at Port Arthur shook the nation to its core. On April 28 and 29, every year, we mourn the loss of the following victims. Winifred Joyce Applin, 58. Sarah Kate Laughlin, 15. Mary Rose Nixon, 60. Glenn Rose Piers, 35. David Martin, 72. Walter John Bennett, 66. Noelle Sally Joyce Martin, 67. Russell James Pollard, 72. Nicole Louise Burgess, 17. Su Lin Chen, 32. Pauline Masters, 49. Jeanette Kathleen Quinn, 50. Helen Maria Alana Louise Mikek, 6. Elva Rhonda Gaylard, 48. Zoe Ann Hall, 28. Elizabeth Jane Howard, 26. Madeline Grace Mikek, 3. Robert Graham Saltzman, 57. Mary Elizabeth Howard, 57. Nanette Patricia Mikek, 36. Kate Elizabeth Scott, 21. Kevin Vincent Sharp, 68. Andrew Bruce Mills, 39. Mervyn John Howard, 55. Raymond John Sharp, 67. Peter Brenton Nash, 32. Ronald Noel Jerry, 71. Tony Kiston, 51. Gwenda Joan Neander, 67. Royce William Thompson, 59. Leslie Dennis Lever, 53. William Ning, 48. Anthony Nightingale, 44. And Jason Bernard Winter, 29. Thank you for joining me for another episode of One Weird Chick. I'm your host, Jessica Fernando. And until next time, stay spooky. To learn more about the Alana and Madeline Foundation, or to donate, please visit www.amf.org.au. Today's episode of One Weird Chick was edited by Toby Sagona. One Weird Chick's opening theme is created by Brielle Johnson, and logo is by Lauren Adams. Follow One Weird Chick on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more.